Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. And our text for this morning is Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. This is God's word also. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let me go to our God and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for by your grace we have new life in Jesus Christ that you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. Father, we acknowledge that nothing we have or nothing we do could make such a big payment, that it's only by the perfect righteousness of your Son. It is only by his sacrifice that is sufficient for us. We acknowledge, Father, I need for cleansing. We acknowledge, Father, that we're sinners in need of your mercy, that you have shown us your abundant grace. Father, when we should have expected to receive the worst of condemnations, Father, you have given us exceedingly great riches. Father, we acknowledge that no sinner could have come up with this plan, that you're the one who has planned it for us. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your exceedingly great gift. We pray, Father, if any are here who have not committed their lives to Christ, Father, We pray that your Holy Spirit would do this mighty work. We pray, Father, that your Son would be embraced. Father, we acknowledge that it is Christ, our Lord, that we need. And we thank you for him. May Christ, your Son, be exalted. And may your servant be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. How often is it that you see it going through uh, perhaps your own neighborhood that there might be a, a local business, whether it be a, a lunch uh, restaurant or a, um, a gas station, where you might see this new sign that says, under new ownership. And what they're communicating there is, hey, well, however, uh, this local business that you used to uh, frequent, uh, and maybe something went wrong, uh, you were mistreated there, and you decided, hey, I'm not going back. Uh, the under new management or new ownership sign indicates that there are new standards, that there are new business practices, that there are new goals. Have you ever wondered for yourself, this under new ownership, under new management, does that sign out for your life? That you are no longer the same person. You cannot be. That with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you must be one who lives by new standards, 
with new goals, with new desires, with new loves. May this be true for every one of you and for me also, that there is a new standard of life by which he has called us, a, a new motivation. And as unlikely as we would think, this passage is saying to us that it is the grace of God that disciplines us. It's counterintuitive that grace would transform us, that grace would discipline us. Here, as we think about this short epistle of Titus, the overall focus of it, the Apostle Paul is writing to his protege, Titus, and he's speaking about God's work of sanctification, the work of God's free grace in the life of a Christian to bring all aspects of your life and mine into humble submission to our Lord Jesus. Uh, this is often described in terms of uh, dying uh, more and more to sin and living more to righteousness, living more according to the ways of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 of Titus, Paul addresses the matters of congregational life. In chapter 2, Paul addresses the matter of family and personal lives. And then in chapter 3, he addresses godly living in the world. As he has called us to be different, and he reminds us from what he has called us from. But really the heart of this entire epistle is found in our section today. Section uh, chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. That this is the focal point of the entire book of Titus. It's speaking about this grace of God that has been revealed to us. That it's not merely instructions about obeying God. We see that throughout the Bible. But you look in, in all of the epistles, there's usually some kind of, uh, this is what God has done for you, what we call the indicatives. This is what God has done for you. This is the Holy Spirit he has given. This is the Son that he has sent. And then, therefore, this is how you ought to live. In this book uh, of Titus, it seems like the instructions are there given, but it goes back then. It looks back and says, this is the grace of God in your life. These are the motivations you ought to have. Grace is training you to change. And I acknowledge that change is not easy. Change is not desirable. For most of you, I can imagine, we start to get into habits. And change is, is exceedingly difficult. I hear that change as you get older, I'm getting older, uh, as you get older becomes more and more difficult to do. But we must also acknowledge our need for change. That if we stop growing, that we stop changing, if we stop maturing in Jesus Christ, maybe our time here is really done. And may it be the case for each one of us that we would continue to change and grow until the Lord should call us home. So we see in this passage that Jesus Christ is God's grace revealed to sinners unto salvation from his previous coming to his glorious return. Jesus Christ is God's grace revealed to sinners unto salvation from his previous coming to his glorious return. We have five points. We'll look at this in five points. Uh, the first, God's grace in Jesus Christ rescue you, rescues you. Second, God's grace disciplines you. Third, God's grace assures you. Fourth, God's grace transforms you. 
And fifth, God's grace in Jesus Christ emboldens you. So let's look at this first point. God's grace in Jesus Christ rescues you. In verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. When we think about the good news uh, that, that came to sinners, was it the account in Matthew that the birth of the king of the Jews was announced to the, to the Magi in the east, that they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's not merely a historical event 2,000 years ago. Uh, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that God's grace is manifested uh, at your conversion. So we acknowledge that Jesus uh, humbled himself. He took upon himself human flesh. He did that. Uh, but it's also true that God's grace was manifested to you when you came to know Jesus Christ. That, that puts you in touch with the event that happened 2,000 years ago. I find it interesting that when you look at uh, history, there was a time that we would say it's B.C., before Christ, and then now we say A.D., in the year of our Lord. And uh, secular historians want to change this to B.C.E. and C.E., but uh, they didn't manage to shift any of the time frame, any of the timeline, meaning that all they managed to do is cut out the Christ uh, upon which the timeline is centered. So if you think about how everything happened that before his birth, it comes to 0 BC or 0 AD, meaning they can even change the titles, change the descriptions, but everything in all of history is oriented on who he is, what he came to do. They cannot erase that. They can't go back and say, we're going to shift this thing by a thousand years. They, they don't do that. They can't do that. All they can do is try to omit his name. God's grace is manifested also to you and to me each time we sin. Because when he calls us to repentance, it's a reminder that you and I are saved by his grace apart from his works. The good news of the gospel is new and fresh to us. Each time we sin, we say we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. And he shows his grace to me. I, of all people, am unworthy to receive this good news. But we give praise to God because we said, you've sent us a Savior in Jesus Christ. He is the perfect Savior. He is the one and only sufficient Savior for us. That this grace indeed was manifested to us. And this grace brings salvation for all people. To whom is this grace manifested? It's manifested to all men, it says here. It's not all men without exception. Because here, even as the Apostle Paul wrote this, that was 2000, about 2,000 years ago. A lot of people have not been born yet. So obviously he wasn't saying all men without exception, all, each and every man, woman, and child who's ever lived. He's not saying that. Rather, he's saying to all men without distinction of classes. All men without distinction. He's addressing old and young, male and female, slave and free, Jew and Gentile. Whatever distinctions that this world makes, he's saying that God, in sending forth the good news of the gospel, in sending forth his grace, the message of salvation, is that those distinctions 
are erased. You realize that for a first century Jew, this would have been significant that, wait a minute, Jesus came to save sinners. It's not merely the Jews. It's even the Gentiles. This also would have been great news. When you think about the culture back then in the Roman world, was it the case that a majority of the people in the Roman world were actually not free? They were of the slave class. But when you think about how many people and of what class of people came to embrace the promises of the gospel, was there, was there not more among those who were not free? Yet even the Apostle Paul can say, uh, greet those of the household of Caesar. Because apparently there were slaves in Caesar's household who became believers. That despite uh, horrible conditions in this present life, the good news of the gospel promises to us eternal riches, true freedom, even this day. That despite whatever status we have in this life, that we're told in this present age, you can be free. The greatest freedom anyone can have is freedom from the bondage to their own sin. Though we may save, uh, serve certain masters in this life, most important master is Jesus Christ who sets us free from the bondage of sin and death. We think about this bringing salvation for all people. The work of salvation, it says so much about what you believe you need. What is your greatest need? What is the work of salvation? <clears throat> Perhaps some people, I'm going to ring some of your bells here. There's a Beatles song. Um, <clears throat> I think it was from the Sgt. Pepper album. Uh, little help from my friends. I think it was one of Ringo Starr's few few songs, right? But many people they they describe the gospel and salvation in these terms. I, Jesus, he he gives me. I get a little help from my friend Jesus. It's as if hey hey I didn't need much. I just needed a little boost, a little help, a little assistance. Is this really how you would describe your salvation in Jesus Christ? May it not be. You realize your desperate condition, that a rescue mission was needed for you. The God, the Father, is the one who makes the grand plan. He, he carries out all the details of that plan, plan according to the counsel of his will. He sends his son, his perfect son, he sends him in human flesh. That Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he pays the price to set you free. And it's as if that weren't enough, the good news of the gospel weren't sufficient, he sends also his Holy Spirit to do the work of applying salvation to your life. That you not only would believe the gospel, but that you would treasure the gospel. That there would be comfort in your life. Comfort in Christ, comfort in the Father. For you rightly to value and appreciate salvation and the rescue of your life requires that you have a proper view of your own condition. 
I hope you understand. I hope you can see that though the world says, hey, listen, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. What we need is some gifts. Uh, the gifts that uh, get taken to the white elephant gifts exchange because no one wants them. No, we don't, need more, we don't need more gifts in this life. We don't need more junk. What you and I need is Jesus Christ. That our hope would be in him. The scriptures testify that we are outside of Christ. We are dead in our trespasses and sins without hope and without God in the world. This is your condition. This is my condition. And that salvation is that we were once condemned. A sentence of death that you and I have been made alive. That we've been forgiven of our sins. That we've received an exceedingly great inheritance in God's Son, Jesus Christ. He willingly shares that with you. That this is the first point. God's grace in Jesus Christ rescues you. Second point. God's grace in Jesus Christ disciplines you. Verse 12. <clears throat> Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this training... This training is discipline. This training is a chastening. This training is a chastising. Typically in the Roman world, this type of work was entrusted to a, a tutor, a, a slave in the household, that the, the, the wealthy Romans, that they would leave all that hard work to somebody else, that the job of the tutor was, was to train up this child. And he was supposed to observe him and make sure that he stayed in line. When we think about the training up of a child, oftentimes we don't think about grace in terms of changing us, in terms of disciplining us. Scriptures speak about how this training is needed. Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, granted, it's not speaking about absolutes, it's speaking about general patterns, general principles. Uh, as a friend of mine had said, there's often some kind of a delay, meaning you train up your children. And uh, there, there may be this time, it's, it's what we call the, the Mark Twain period, right? You have this Mark Twain quote that, hey, the children, they despise their parents and what they teach them, and they're like 13 or so. And, and then after some years, right, they, they leave and they come back, and, and this, this view of, hey, my, my parents have grown a lot in wisdom in the short time that I was gone, right? And, and, and here we think about how at some point, uh, our prayer is that our children, as we give them instruction according to God's word, that whether it be 25 or 32, that they, they begin to see the wisdom of what we've taught them. That's, that's our prayer, is that this training will have an effect. <clears throat> this changing that we have, that we're called to, it's a change that begins with a change of identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So we think about this training, and we think about how grace is actually what trains us. It's easy to think, oh, wait a minute. 
I know how we can get people to change. We can hang something over them. And we can say, it won't be yours until you've worked for it, until you've earned it. So you can live in doubt and you can work for it all your life. And then at the very end, then we can say, okay, we'll give it to you. Does that system actually work? I'm going to tell you, practically, it doesn't work at all. You think about the various religions out there. You think about uh, the false religions, idolatry. This is really the doctrines of demons. Uh, those don't work. You think about uh, the self-help, the do-it-yourself, that I will work for it and I will try harder. Ultimately, all of that amounts to you're trusting yourself to save yourself. And that's no, that's no confidence. And then you have other types of religion, uh, trusting in a priestly class, uh, whether it have a garb of, of antiquity or not. If we're trusting in a sinful group of priests to save us, then our hope is worthless. What you have in Jesus Christ, in the grace of the gospel, is that you have trust in one who is perfect. One who is in every way tempted as we are, yet he is without sin. That he took upon himself human flesh. That he lived the perfect life. That he is holy and righteous. And he is holy and righteous because he himself is God. This is what this grace trains us to do. It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This term ungodliness is often translated as irreverence or impiety, uh, which, which is a lack of proper respect or value or appreciation for what is pleasing to God, what God has given us in his word, what, what he has commanded us to do, how he has commanded us to live. You realize that wickedness often begins with some type of irreverence or impiety. These are the standards that God calls us to outwardly. And when we start to neglect, we start to despise that which God has given us. For example, something very simple, the, the public worship of God. Public worship of God. It seems like it's a very small thing. But how important it is for our daily lives that we think about being with God's people, treasuring the time. We start to realize how important it is. If you only have so much energy, just, just think about how, if you have only so much energy to expend during the week, and just the thought of the Lord's Day being the first day of the week, not the last day of the week. If we think of it as the last day, that's, okay, we have all the things that we need to get done. We have our work. Uh, we have to take care of the garbage and, and, and rake the leaves. And then if I have some energy left on the last day, the Lord's Day, then I might go. But if we think of the perspective, it's the most important. It's the first day. Meaning before we expend any energy, if we say, this is where we ought to be. We ought to expend our energy in preparing ourselves to worship God. I don't know if you've thought about this. I have thought about it. As I'm getting older, 
we're going to have less and less energy. All the other activities we have to start paring down. If, if there's illness, if there's some type of a medical situation, we have even more time cut down. And we need to ask ourselves, what are our priorities? What are we going to start cutting out? Is the Lord important to us? We think about also this ungodliness. It's a willful ignorance of what God requires. It's this, I don't know, and I don't want to know. Or, I don't know, and I don't care. That we ought to desire to know what God has given us, what he expects of us. With knowledge comes accountability. So in general, people say, I'd rather not know, because then if I know, then I'm obligated to do it. But rather, that you and I would be those who say, we, we should desire to know what we don't know. Instead of using that ignorance as an excuse. There's also the worldly passions. The desire for and love of the things, the values, the standards of the world. Loving and seeking the praise of men. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 16 warns us, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Our Lord Jesus is the one who frees you from your old self, from your previous patterns of sin. You realize what God does. I've met people who, from the outside, it seems like everything in their life is going well. They're making a whole boatload of money. Other people wish they could be in their shoes. And then they have some type of a great crisis in life. They have all these things. They, have all the, they don't have enough time to spend the money they've earned. But then they realize, you know what? It wouldn't matter if you gave me another $10 billion. I can't spend it. And none of those things have any importance, have any value. And, and they come to this crisis and they realize that their lives are empty without Jesus Christ. And others look at them and say, how, how can you be in this situation? Everything is going your way. Not realizing what's eating at them from the inside. There's also the positive. So we spoke about the negatives, ungodliness or irreverence, worldly passions, doing things and following the standards of the world. But there's also the positive, that the grace trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Self-control or sensible. It's a willingness to say to yourself, no. It's a willingness to say to yourself, no. It's often the case that we have certain freedoms in this life. We have freedoms to do certain things. But at times we have to say to ourselves, just because we have the freedom to doesn't mean we should. Jesus tells us, Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is the matter of self-control. Let him deny himself. Meaning, Hey, we can have these things. Isn't this Satan's lie to us? Hey, you can have things right away. Right? Isn't this some of the 
marketing slogans your way right away, right? Obey your thirst, whatever's the case. See, it's everything set up against this idea of self-control. You can have whatever you want right away. Self-control means for us being guided by the Holy Spirit. Upright. Upright meaning righteously or justly. God has shown us what is right, what is just, and that we should live according to this truth. For godly, it's the opposite of irreverent. It's being devout. It's being devoted to Jesus Christ. Your life being dedicated to Christ, set apart for him. And we think about how this grace is what really changes us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, For the love of Christ compels us. Isn't that what others are surprised at? Hey, we've noticed that, you know, your friends tell you, hey, we've noticed that you're completely changed. Maybe you didn't have the best friends before. Maybe, maybe the, the things that you were involved with weren't the best. But they see this marked change. Hey, you don't do this stuff anymore. You used to lead us in it. You used to drive us on in it. And now you've completely stopped it, whatever that sinful activity might be. And they might ask you, what, what changed? That you and I would be those who would say, the love of Christ compels us. That there wouldn't be a, a self-righteous condemnation of your past friends, but that there would, there would be an invitation, you know what? I'll tell you what's changed. This Lord Jesus has taken new ownership of my life. Let me tell you about this joy. And perhaps this joy and this change might be infectious to others. So that's the second point. The third point, God's grace in Jesus Christ assures you in verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In this passage here, the big question is would not uh, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ is referring to two people or is referring to one? I hope you can see, as, I, as I'm going to explain to you, it's actually referring to one person. So this is called the Granville Sharp Rule. Our great God, it's not our great God and then our Savior Jesus Christ. It's saying our great God and Savior. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. I hope you see there's a difference. He's our great God. He's also our great Savior. And it is the person Jesus Christ. This here is proclaiming that our Lord Jesus is not only our Savior, He is God indeed. This is, this is what others will all deny. They will omit. When you talk to those uh, who wish to mask or disguise Christianity... They'll often say, oh, yeah, Jesus, he, he, was, uh, he was a great moral teacher. And what they're doing is they're shamming him, right? They're, they're ignoring the obvious. Unless he is God Almighty, he is nobody at all. If we miss that, if we miss, if we talk about this, uh, this baby Jesus who was born and put in a manger, and, and we see uh, figures of these uh, on people's lawns, He's not merely a martyr. If he was a sinner and a martyr, 
then he's no different than even secular martyrs. He is either God or he's nothing at all. We ought to understand, in order for him to be Savior, he had to be God. Because only God is perfect. When we think about this hope, waiting for our blessed hope, it's a reminder to us that when Jesus left, he promised he will return. In Acts chapter 1, Christ's disciples witness his ascension to heaven. And as they were looking up there, still looking up, you know, next, next getting a little sore, Acts 1.11. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Simply put, quit looking up. He's told you to go do something. He's told you to live a certain way. He's told you to bring this good news to others. He will return the same way he left. Be ready for it. This hope is valuable for us. It's our anchor. It's important that you and I remember that Jesus will return. He came first in obscurity. He came first in humility. He came first in his grace, in his weakness. But the second time that he comes, he will come in glory and in power and with his mighty angels. This is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you and I not lose sight of who it is that we worship, our Lord Jesus. He has promised that he will return. May you and I be awaiting it. May we be ready for it. For what are you waiting in this life? Are you waiting to make it to retirement? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, perhaps you're young. Perhaps you're waiting for being united in marriage. There's nothing wrong with that either. But may I remind you that in the midst of, of life's hopes and desires, may you not forget that we should look forward to the day that Christ returns. First and foremost, that you and I would be ready for his return but that we would also be hopeful, that we would be eager for his return. So this is the third point, waiting. Waiting for the blessed hope, and this grants you assurance even in this life as you live. The fourth point, God's grace in Jesus Christ transforms you. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Jesus gave himself for us. He did not come to seek to keep his own life. He diligently served others. The warning is, he who seeks to keep his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will keep it. Consider what Jesus has freely given to you. Oftentimes, we couple free things with cheap things. Meaning, in this world, if someone is giving something away for free, think about it like this. 
in, in our culture, if uh, you find an object, a lawnmower on someone's lawn, that's his lawnmower. You can't walk up and take it. But if the lawnmower is sitting on his boulevard, the stretch on the other side of the sidewalk, potentially one can say, hey, that's in that zone where it's like, hey, this is being given away for free. You, you understand what I'm talking about? Maybe this wasn't the case where I came from, right? This, this little zone, this boulevard, if you have some item there, it's considered junk, whether it be a chair or, or a mattress or bed, whatever's the case, a lawnmower, string trimmer, those items placed on that boulevard are for free. But we understand, hey, they're probably broken, they're hand-me-downs. There's a tendency to think that free things are worthless. But you realize that with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the free things are not worthless. The free things are priceless. Even though the world thinks, oh, that's just hopes and dreams. That's just a bunch of old men and their old religions. God has given us his word. Jesus has given us his promise. That he's promised us that all who repent and turn from their sins and believe upon Jesus Christ will receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And this is free because you cannot earn it. You cannot pay for it. But it is priceless. Jesus has paid it all already. It cost him his life. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all lawlessness. We think about cultures. Cultures come and change. And you think about how, how much there is in our culture now a certain lawlessness, a defiance. Who are you to tell me how I need to live in this society? Who are you to tell me this and that? We realize that this is what Jesus saves us from. We cannot live as lawless people anymore. We must live as those who are in humble and joyful submission to Jesus Christ, who is our new master. His goal is that he would purify for himself a people of his own possession. You realize this is good news. You are a people of his own possession. We saw that in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Jesus is reminding his people, listen, all these seven groups, the Girgashites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, so these groups, they were supposed to be wiped out. They lived in lawlessness. They lived in wickedness. And God said, in due time, they will be judged. And they were. And God acknowledged that they were a great people. They're a mighty people. And he speaks to the descendants of Abraham and says that uh, they are his treasured possession. It's a reminder to us to ask that question. Why are you in Christ? It's not because of anything good in us. That's the conclusion we ought to have readily. It's not because of something different about you and me. And for God to speak of us as his treasured possession. Just think about the way that God spoke about Job. Uh, the Satan, hey, have you considered my servant Job? 
He is blameless and upright. That God speaks about us as something valuable, as something treasured. And we often need to be reminded that you are his great treasure. That his, his delight is in us. And the evidence of God's grace in your life is how you live. That he's purified for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Why is it that we now obey him? The things we once neglected to do, we should desire to do. That's the evidence for your life and mine that grace has transformed us. Is that the things we thought, hey, why bother with that? That you and I would be diligent in serving him. That this would be zealous for good works. That it would describe you and me. So this is the transformation that comes. And then the fifth point, God's grace in Jesus Christ emboldens you. Verse 15, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Here, ultimately, he's speaking to uh, Titus, who is a minister, but the general principles still apply to everyone. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The world wants Christians to be silenced. I, come to, I came to understand this as I dealt with this one older family member who's put into words exactly what the world wants for us. You Christians should live out your lives in total privacy and leave other people completely alone. Meaning, your life should be lived in a closet for no one to see so that the, none, of, none of us have to witness that. None of us have to be reminded about Jesus Christ, to hear his name, to hear the good news of the gospel because we don't want any of that. You realize, Revelation talks about uh, the, uh, the demons or, the, or these uh, locusts that come and they torment people such that they desire death. But somehow, the good news of the gospel is scarier than anything else. Right? They, they, the, cure, the cure that comes to bring them hope, they despise even more than the, the torment of demons for some reason. Now, you and I are reminded... People want the silence. They don't want the reminder of hope in Jesus Christ. But yet, he's commanded us that we would bear witness of this good news. That we would tell others of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That we ought to state it candidly. That we ought to state it plainly. You think about the example of the apostles. At Christ's uh, arrest and his crucifixion, it seems like during that period, they all deserted him. They all turned tail and went separate ways. They left him. Perhaps they're thinking, well, it probably wouldn't cost them much. Instead of having three crosses, uh, they could have uh, 15 crosses, meaning they crucified him. They're probably going to do that to us too. Well, they were right. The difference is the change of mentality that they fled before, but then came their commission, and then came the giving of the Holy Spirit. And you see what effect that it had upon them. 
that they were able to say, even to those who opposed them, those who had authority to flog them, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. How much it is that I need this reminder often, that to speak in this world, to tell of what Christ told us to tell them, let no one disregard you. Perhaps at some point, you might come to the conclusion to whom, who, who has received our message? You've heard this before. Huh. They don't appreciate what I'm telling them. Well, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen, correct? The prophets had that. You and I are told that we have this. But you realize that this doesn't mean we should stop saying it. It doesn't mean we should stop living out the truth of the gospel. That our Lord Jesus resurrected from the grave. That this is good news for sinners. We should continue to live it. We should continue to delight in it. And we should pray that others would also delight in it. Even as we think through this passage, it's a reminder to us about the hope of Jesus Christ. That it's not just once a year, but it's every waking moment of your life. It's not enough time to think and to praise God for the good news of the gospel, that in Jesus Christ you have true hope for forgiveness and eternal life. That for eternity we will rejoice and give thanks to God for this good news. Amen. It's a question also. It's a question also for you. What is your motivation? What is the impetus for you to renounce, to forsake ungodliness? Is it merely your fear of getting caught by authorities? Or is it merely the shame that it could potentially bring upon you? If so, then I might say that there needs to be some significant change regarding our motivation. Our motivation, even as it says in this passage, is grace. God's grace to you. That you and I might say, wow, this grace has transformed my life. I now have a new master. He's shown me such grace. You can tell a lot about, about a person by how they respond to what's already theirs. It's not as if you and I have earned it. We have not. It's not as if you and I will earn it. We cannot. It's that Jesus gives it so freely to us. How then will you live your life? We think also about how God's grace is greater than all of our sins. He saved us. He called us away from an old life. He calls us to a new life. May none of us say and look back and say the old life was better. May we always look forward and trust that there is hope for Christ's coming. This is also a reminder to us about having a right understanding of new life and new ownership. You have been bought by the blood of Christ. He paid the ransom to set you free. May we trust in his saving work. May it be a, ref, uh, a, rest, a rest from our labors. May it be a refreshment of good news. May you and I eagerly await that Christ will soon return in glory. And may we be ready for his return. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Lord God. We thank you, Father.